If you ache for truth, goodness, and beauty, if you're hungry for a Christianity with substance and strength, if you long for a faith that's big and bold and biblical and all about Jesus Christ, if you're inspired by the idea of one church that has spanned 20 centuries, 24 time zones, and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language, then you're considering Catholicism. Welcome to Considering Catholicism. We are back with Carla Nizalek. Say hi, Carla. Hello, everyone. If you joined us for the last episode, Carla is our expert at declaring your marriage null and void. I don't know if I'm quite the expert, but I do journey with a few people. <laughs> That's right. She handles annulments for our parish and has been doing so for many years. And in the last episode, we talked about the various grounds for declaring a Catholic marriage null and void. It's called an annulment. It's saying that a valid sacrament of matrimony never occurred. And so therefore that marriage in a sense never really happened. Correct. And as we were saying, that that sounds weird to non-Catholics. And I used to feel this when I was a non-Catholic. It sounds dodgy. It sounds like this is just some kind of a weird Catholic way to get a divorce because you'll see people like these people had four kids, they had a house, they had a dog, they had Christmases, they had all this stuff. And now you're just saying there was that they weren't really married? Sometimes this is actually an inhibiting factor for some Catholic people to even start the annulment process because they're like, does this invalidate my children? It doesn't. But right. how hard is that when you're like, you know, I'm I'm trying to annul your father and... To say that you're, your like, father and I were never really did married. Did it never really happen? Well, obviously yeah. we have our children and like, how's, how's my child going to look at me? I and, remember and how scandalous, scandalous it seemed to me as a Protestant or as an evangelical, especially when you would look at prominent Catholics. Mm-hmm. So you would say, hey, here's a, you know, this politician or this Catholic movie star or whatever. And this politician or this movie star had all these kids and this whole history and then they're like oh no they found this new woman and they're gonna now just declare that their wife of 30 years that they had four kids with that never happened right and And people could say oh are they purchasing their annulment well it all yeah and it always looked scandalous it looked kind of ridiculous and so there's a lot of misunderstanding about this. And in the last episode, you can go back and listen. We talked about the various grounds under which you would say, while there may have been a civil marriage, and nobody's denying that there wasn't a civil marriage. Nobody's right. denying that you right. didn't have a house and a dog and a Christmas tree and kids. The Catholic sacrament of matrimony never occurred. Right. And that is then the difference. And, you know, that's at the end of the day, when we're looking at annulments, you know, we're trying to bring people into right relationship with God, bring them back. And whether that's someone who is a Catholic that had a divorce and, you know, it just really wasn't a marriage, or it's someone who's wanting to come into the Catholic church who is remarried and now needs to look back at a, at a previous relationship and, and then look at that and go, you know, was, was that a marriage or was that not a marriage? so that we can bring them in in good standing. Yeah, you know, that's why a couple of episodes ago, Corey and I 
really camped on this vocabulary here because there's no doubt that a marriage occurred in the in the general sense it was a civil, a marriage. civil marriage it it may have been even a marriage recognized in the eyes of your non-denominational church correct but, could be but that does not mean and what the catholic church is trying to determine did it rise to the level of sacramental matrimony? That's okay? the important part. Because I certainly could go get married by the Elvis impersonator in Vegas, or I could go to the country club and hire a rent-a-minister or at the ski resort or whatever, or go to Cancun and have the rent-a-minister do our wedding. And no one's denying, I mean, you got the wedding pictures. Hey, no one's denying yeah, that, that you had this civil marriage, but it was basically signed on a document by the courthouse. And a couple of episodes ago, Corey and I were talking about how the Protestant Reformation brought this about because with the Protestant reformers denying that marriage was a sacrament, they moved it outside of the supervision of the church to the state. And so now the civil government was guaranteeing marriages and that has had all kinds of implications for us. So you you may have had that civil marriage but it may not have been sacramental matrimony. Now, we talked in the last episode about the various grounds by which you may declare that a valid sacrament of matrimony never occurred. Correct. Today, we're going to talk about the process by which you would apply for annulment. And I think that's, you talk about basically applying for a petition for it. What's the correct term? Well, you're going to do a questionnaire and the person who begins that process is called the petitioner and the person that they were married to will be called the respondent. And, you know, when somebody starts this, usually or many times, if it's a non-Catholic person, they're interested in coming into the the Catholic church to joining the Catholic church. And so... Pause just a second. Let's do two questions here. One, okay, first is, and you'll get into this in a minute, Do you go to the Vatican, Mm -hmm. to the Office of Annulments? Do you write into or go on to the Catholic Church in America's website and to Mm -hmm. the annulment tab? That would be really challenging. No, it's it's easier than that. It's even easier than that. Well, yes and no, because it it begins at a parish or it it occurs at at the diocese level, right? Correct. It'll start at your parish level. Usually uh, an RCIA or OCIA, now we're calling it, director might have a questionnaire or you have a conversation. And they might ask, you know, have you been previously married? And if you're remarried, they'll say, you know, I think we need to talk about that because that could have been a sacrament. We want to, we need to look at making that. So this happens every day because another one of the things that Carla does is she runs the RCIA program for our parish. And so I would imagine every RCIA or OCIA class, you have at least one person in there who is on a second marriage, wants to enter the church, and you have to determine, are you in a second marriage, which makes it essentially you're living in adultery, or can the previous marriage be annulled such that your second marriage can be recognized, right? Right. And that's really then where it usually begins, that we'll sit down, we'll do an interview so to speak, of what's your life been like to this point? How did you get here? What was that relationship like? And that helps me to determine when someone comes to my office, what kind of case we're looking at. So there's the formal case for like a Catholic person that was married outside of the Catholic church. I'm sorry, that's a lack of form case. Or there's a formal case 
which might be a Catholic person who was married in the Catholic church, but feels there are grounds that it was not a sacrament. Or somebody who was not Catholic, doesn't matter whether you're Protestant or or not, but they just were not married in the Catholic church. That's a formal case. Okay, so, so let's distinguish between two kinds of annulment processes, okay? The first one, because I want to talk about the RCA thing, which is the most common thing that you deal with and also that our listeners are probably interested in. But let's at first acknowledge that you could have a cradle Catholic, right? And they want to enter into a second marriage because the first marriage ended in a divorce. Now that divorce is a civil divorce because the Catholic church never issued you a divorce. Correct. But you have, okay, Bob and Sally both cradle Catholics get married. Then one of them leaves the other for whatever reason. They get a civil divorce. Right. Now, Sally says, it's that's five years ago, 10 years ago, I've met a nice new Catholic man and we want to get married in the Catholic church by father. And he says, well, well hold on a second because you were married to Bob before. I know, but I got divorced. But the divorce isn't something the Catholic church recognizes. So Sally's option in that is to be initiate a process of annulment to determine based on the grounds we talked about in the last episode, whether that first marriage to Bob was valid or not. And if it was valid, then she is not free to enter into the second marriage. Right. Which can be very difficult for someone to hear. Right. And so she has to initiate this annulment process, which we're getting into the process in a minute. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. But the more common thing that probably our listeners are dealing with and that you deal with is someone that wants to enter the Catholic Church through RCIA or OCIA, and they are on a second marriage. Uh, So somewhere in their past, they were married. Now they're married again to somebody else, and they want to enter, they or maybe they and their new spouse both want to enter the Catholic Church, Mm -hmm. but you've got this previous marriage. Sometimes it's one of them has a previous. Sometimes there's multiple. Um, they both and, have been married before. And that, and that can be a challenge. Which means that they, they need two separate annulments. They do, and we have to do them separately yeah. as well. You know, a best case scenario is if someone was never baptized and the person they were previously married to was never baptized. And we can prove that because that becomes a much shorter case. It's called Pauline privilege. And that that is actually like a best case scenario for annulment process for someone who's not Catholic. So there's a difference. So this Pauline privilege thing is basically a different kind of case. So it's a different I, kind. To it's give an analogy. So, and this Pauline privilege one would, would be a case of because somebody wasn't baptized, then by default at face value, there was no Christian marriage. Correct. With two non-baptized people. Right. So... You go back and Dave and Samantha got married before either one of them was a Christian. Neither of them had been baptized. They get married in Vegas or Cancun. Then five years later, they get divorced. After that, one of them finds Jesus, gets baptized, and wants to enter the Catholic Church. That previous marriage to the unbaptized, when they were both unbaptized, that becomes your easiest case. Right. That is the easiest case for a Protestant or non-Catholic person uh, wanting to have an annulment. Because by definition, it was a civil marriage. By definition, it was not even a Christian marriage because they weren't Christians recognized by baptism. And it certainly couldn't have risen to the level of being sacramental matrimony when neither of them were Christians. Indeed. 
And so that that usually is the the simplest case for someone in the RCIA coming in now finding the church, wanting to be baptized. And you're going to have more of those in the future as you have the generation who maybe has grown up outside the church. The nuns. The nuns and all that. But a lot of times what you're dealing with is people who were formerly Protestants or evangelicals. And so that marriage, that previous marriage Mm -hmm. that they hoped to annul was, had some Christian part of it. It was in a, Protestant church. It was in a evangelical church. It it may have been at, at at the beach in Cancun, but there was a Protestant pastor. Right. There who, was some kind of Christian component. Yeah. That, you know, with one okay. of the people. So they come to you. They're in the RCA class. They say we want to join the Catholic Church, but one or both of us have a previous marriage, and so we need to know. I mean. Are we living in adultery? Yeah, like, or what is, do we do? Well, because if, if, are we living in adultery currently and then we can't enter the church or uh, can we annul this? And so they talk to you and then what happens next? So the next step is we would begin figuring out what kind of case they have. So what type of case? So once we figured out what type of case, formal, lack of form, legomen, Pauline privilege, I help them figure out what type of case they they should be applying for. And then we get the right set of documents from our tribunal and we begin that questionnaire so, application. Well, you, okay, so you introduced a word there, the tribunal. What is the tribunal? So the tribunal is our diocese's court of law. Every Every diocese around the world has a marriage tribunal. Correct. And it operates under canon law, not civil law, which is church law. And so it is a court of, and essentially judges, although they are- Right, they'll have a judiciary vicar, a judge. They have, you know, a whole set of people that that is their full-time job. And there is a category in the Catholic Church of canon lawyers. There are people who actually go and get a degree in canon law. And canon law goes back thousands of years and it's very established just as a civil law. But you have this tribunal that is going to hear this case Mm -hmm. and adjudicate this case based on the code of canon law. The code of canon law. Now, that tribunal is at the diocese, but they are talking to you. Now, there are canon lawyers that make a living doing canon law just as You'd have civil lawyers or criminal lawyers and you pay them and they handle your case just like a civil attorney. So a high profile person might choose to hire a super high power canon lawyer because they, you know, are super expert to try to get this done. But the average person, this could become a financial burden because of the fees involved. And interestingly, Pope Francis made a change about that, didn't he? That was back in September, I believe, of 2015 that Pope Francis made some changes to the annulment process that helped to make it uh, affordable so that it was free and that it would not take quite as long. It used to be that you actually had to have two separate rulings where now he brought it back to, he brought it back to just having one ruling. So it used to be the case that it could take years. It could. It years. was sort of unbelievable how and long there it were, could take. And there were costs and fees involved. Not anybody was trying to get rich, but you basically were paying court costs. Right. It essentially. Would, it would have been quite a bit. And so now. So Pope Francis says, look, yeah. nobody, just because they're poor or they're you know strapped for cash or whatever, should not be able to access this process. And, it mm-hmm. sh- and they should get an answer. 
And I think I remember when he did that because he said, look, the answer may not be an answer you want. It may say we're denying your annulment. That previous marriage was valid and the second marriage you're in right now is basically an adult. But you should know that. You shouldn't have to wait four years to find that out. Correct. Yeah, that's that's a hard one. Mm -hmm. So Pope Francis says, look, it needs to be, in a sense, a speedy trial and it it, it should be a free process. So they aren't going to pay fees in it. Now, again, here's my (laughs) generality, my analogy. I get arrested. They read me my rights and they say, you have a right to an attorney. If you cannot afford an attorney, one will be provided to you without charge, right? Mm -hmm. And then they could give me essentially a free public defender. And you are sort of like the free public defender because you're not, you don't have a degree in canon law. I do not. But you have gone through extensive training and certification and you at the parish level are somebody who is available Without cost, without cost, to be like a paralegal or or a a public procurator defender, advocate, yeah, procurator <laughs> advocate in the Catholic Church, everything has we has have to, a name for everything, everything has to, and it has to be in Latin. Uh, but essentially, you are that free person who can journey with that person, yeah, process help them, their, yeah, help figure them out the path, right? and and to try to make their case, put their petition case to their to the tribunal. Okay, so you say, are we need to get. We determine what kind of case this is and you get the appropriate forms or whatever, which stipulate what kind of evidence and things need to be. And then you go into this process of gathering the evidence because in the last episode, we we talked about grounds. So if you're going to say, hey, I was mentally incapacitated or this guy lied or this happened or all the things, if you go back and listen to this episode, I mean, all those things are actually, you know, factual claims, Right. right? You know, this was, you know, there were all these impediments or there was this diminished capacity or there was this deceit or there was whatever. But those are claims about things that in many cases occurred decades ago it could so we have we have to have evidence you can't just say hey i just really want an omen and uh, i totally Uh promise that this was like this is a judicial process and it's going to look at evidence so now you fill this out and you say okay these were the grounds based on that menu of options right so even before i start a case i need to know that they have a formal divorce decree Because we can't even begin the case from the civil court, from the civil court until there's a formal divorce decree. So sometimes somebody's really burnt, you know, in a bad relationship and they're like, I just want out of this sacramentally. I want to make sure this wasn't a sacrament. And they're not even truly divorced civilly Yeah, they just left and they didn't go through with the civil divorce. And so, no, we actually need to see the civil divorce decree. And that's part of the paper where we submit to the tribunal. Yeah, because you you compile this legal file. I do. And it has all these documents in there. So you need that one. We need their marriage license, their civil marriage license, divorce decree. And if they were baptized, their baptism certificates. Okay. Or their sacramental record if they were Catholic. So yeah, we have to find all of these documents. Okay. So you've got the foundational documents, the original marriage certificate, the divorce certificate, all of these kinds of things. And then you've got their Basically, there's their claims, right? Their questionnaire, their yeah. Uh, so they're, they're things, their things, their testimony on paper. Okay, their testimony, which they claim that the following things occurred or didn't occur, Correct. which would which would in their view should invalidate their marriage. Now you have to gather 
evidence to determine whether their claims about what they say happened 20 or 30 years ago actually happened. How do you go about that? So evidence usually comes in the form of witness statements. So once we have their testimony on paper, we have those that full packet of documents put together, then we're at the point of submitting that and sending that to the tribunal. Okay, so witness statements. So yes. guy says, dude, I was totally drunk out of my mind, man. I was totally plastered. I didn't even know what I was doing. So what, you go back and find his best man who yeah. got him plastered at the, at the uh, bachelor party? Yeah, you're looking for people who knew both spouses at the time of the wedding or even before the wedding. Or you say, hey, this person had diminished capacity because of intoxication or psychological, or this person was coerced. Sure. Or lied to. What if you say, hey, I want a divorce from my lying, cheating husband 30 years ago because he was totally deceitful to me in the engagement process and all the things we talked about last time. Yeah, he told me a whole bunch of a whole bunch of lies and he was, you know, running around while even while you're we engaged, having affairs or, you know, or whatever the case may be. Or he told me that he was this or that. So you got to find witnesses who can testify that he was a lying, cheating person and he lied to them. So you got to go back and find people because he's certainly not going to sign a confession. Yeah, he I may told- not. Yeah. But, you know, it's sometimes surprising how the truth comes out when another person does respond. They may not even know they're, they're doing it, but, you know, that personality or whatever those traits were, the conditions were that were there sometimes have a way of so coming in, out in that instance, other person's testimony. In that instance, woman comes in, says, I was married to this guy, you know, 30 years ago, and he was a lying, cheating, whatever, and he lied or manipulated or he did whatever it is, all those, those things we talked about at the time of the wedding. Do you then find this guy and ask him to respond? No, we don't. But what we do have to do is provide a valid contact information or valid contact information. So his address, whatever we can find. And that sometimes, you know, when a a marriage has been dissolved legally for a while, that person may not have spoken to that other spouse, ex-spouse in 25 years. And so they don't even know their address or where they live. So we actually go online and get on the Google, you know, and and search it up and and try to find the most recent address. And that's what we're submitting. I remember a couple sometimes. of years ago, you were telling me about a case where you were, had to, or somebody had to get, I don't know, maybe the, the applicant or the petitioner paid for it, but they had to get private investigators involved to sort of track down the ex and witnesses and all that and determine you know, what happened. So we had a case where um, someone was married a very long time ago and that person did not know um, the other person's new name. It was a woman who had, you know, remarried. So we didn't know her new last name. Mm -hmm. And to try to search her up, you know, we're using people search addresses online and, and really having to sort of track her down to figure out what address we can put on and you know, would we be able to get some kind of corroboration? Now, interestingly, if someone, the say the person, the petitioner is making the case, they get it all ready to go and we send it off and then the other person doesn't respond. Sometimes the worry is, well, is that going to hold up my case? It does not. There's a certain period of time that they have to respond, but they don't have to and the case will still move forward. 
So if there is a response, even if it's a ne- you know maybe a negative type response, that's fine. But it's it's not going to stop the case or the annulment from moving forward if the respondent just makes no response, which many times is what I've seen happen. It's just that second person's, I don't want to give this my time of day. And they just sort of let that go. Okay. But now finding those witnesses, you know, I, I'm just thinking about, I've never been involved in these cases, but I listen to a lot of true crime podcasts and I watch a lot of lawyer shows on TV. So I can imagine these scenarios where you would say, well, okay, Sally wants to get her marriage to the lying, cheating ex-husband, Bob, from 30 years ago. She wants to get it annulled. So she's going to call up a couple of her good friends mm-hmm. from the old days who will back her up. Sure. And so yeah, that, could, that, could feel, that could feel a little bit sketchy, you know, because she's making claims. And, and how, would, how, how is it going to determine whether these witnesses, like the, their testimony, they're telling the truth? So it's the same as any court of law. When someone makes a testimony and they sign their name, that's their truth. So we believe that those people will be writing their true thoughts, feelings of that time, of those people. So they're signing essentially an affidavit. They are signing an affidavit that this is what they knew to be true at that time. This is what they experienced. And, And that is binding, just as if someone was in a regular civil court. And you go up, put your hand on the Bible kind of thing. And, and you, this is the same type of deal, but it's in writing. So let's suppose there were also other factual issues involved. You know, Bob was a con man or, you know, Bob was, had previously had been a monk who ran away from the <laughs> monastery, right? I mean, would, some, would somebody have to go out and, you know, determine those facts or prove those facts. But I mean, you would go, wait a minute, let's go find the monastery that you ran away from, or let's, you know, let's go find the criminal thing that proves that Bob was a con man because he was convicted. Like you, you would actually chase right. down yeah, all of indeed. that. Indeed, And I've actually had cases where someone was a criminal and they weren't forthcoming with that. And then after the marriage, you know, there was abuse and other, you know, terrible things that happened. And she didn't know that there was all this background. So you have to search like criminal records. So we could even submit some criminal records as evidence proving that, yes, indeed, this person wasn't honest about who he was. This is what he had done prior. And then it also helps to validate, you know, the abuse that actually took place after the wedding, showing that this person was not who she thought she was marrying. So you compile this big file big three-inch file or whatever with all of these witness statements and records and documents and this whole thing. And when you feel like you've got this solid, you then submit it to the tribunal? Yes. So we submit it to the tribunal and then they will actually read the case, look it over. And then if they feel that it has solid grounds, then what they'll do is assign the judge and the defender and the notary. And then they send a letter back to us called the Labellus. So it's sort of a crazy. Oh, so yeah. they're going to just review this. And if they think like their first read through, this just isn't going to fall. super weak. It's not it's, looking like it, you have the evidence you need. Then they're just going to send it back and say, they will. 
Nope. Yeah, and and there's you know you a could good resu- you could resubmit you could if, if you say hey if they came back and said we think you don't have enough documents or enough records or go go try to find better right evidence. or you're just you know the testimony isn't in a way that is compelling or seems like it's all there you just didn't have quite what you needed okay so you as their advocate then could say all right well let's see if we can. Take a second, you know, yeah, swing take at the, a second look a at second it. swing at the pinata here. We're going to go right. back and gather some more witness statements, some more evidence and, and resubmit. Sure. And depending on how skilled your procurator advocate is, or even if you didn't have one, you don't really know, you know, sometimes people get lost in the, the long story. Right. And so they're not even sure of what uh, grounds they might have, but they're just telling a really long... Dumping their bucket. Of, yeah, yeah. They're just telling a long story and they don't even know what they're saying that, you know, the judge is looking at going, well, there's the ground. I want you to go back and look at this yeah, because I can imagine there's and so, tell us more about that. Yeah, I can imagine there's so much emotion involved in this. Some people just want to vent their all of their emotions, but this is a legal thing. So you want to zero in on this specific thing that would be the grounds to prove that it wasn't a valid marriage. So when you're answering the questions in our diocese, they say, you know, every answer. Every answer should either be, it could be as simple as a yes or no, but no longer than about four sentences. Because it's not about telling, okay, and then this happened, and then she did this, and I said this. No, that's not what we're looking for. Yeah, because you're zeroing in on this very specific legal canon law question. Did the ground, right, right, you know, to support the grounds that this was an invalid marriage. Okay, now let's suppose that they review it and they say, it looks like prima facie, you've got a case that we can now take to the next step. And they send you this document. Right, it's called the Labellus. And so they will send this to the petitioner and then they also will cite the respondent. So the other okay. spouse, the so, ex-spouse. Yeah, the ex-spouse. And then the respondents will be asked to reply within three weeks. But if they don't, Again, that won't stop the case, but they do have three weeks to. So they could them. they could say, "Wait a minute, I object to this based on X Y Z. Like my ex here is applying for this, and this whole thing that she's claiming, like I dispute the facts." They they could do that, but once the re- and so once we receive the libellus, we will have that signed, and it and it has to be notarized or signed by a parish priest, and then that gets sent back in, and that's when it the case formally begins. So I think sometimes people think, okay, when I start my paperwork and I'm working with my advocate, that's when it began. Well, it really doesn't begin, like the the clock doesn't begin until the libellus is accepted or you get that letter until the case is accepted. And then that's when it officially begins. So if you are looking at a formal case in our diocese of Grand Rapids in Michigan, then you're probably looking at about a 12 to 14 month process from that point. From the time that they initiate. So not right. all that pre-work. That didn't that count in the time. pre-work could have taken you six months. It could have. It could have. And you know, some people are working through a lot of trauma with, with recalling these details if it was a really nasty marriage. And so, you know, it can be very healing to let those things go and to, and to work that out. But yeah, whatever time it took ahead of the libellus, doesn't count on the clock. This is when the formal clock begins. Okay. So now they've appointed a judge, right? A, a member of the tribunal who will be like the, the presiding judge, so to speak. Now, this is the part where people think people get freaked out because they go, so do I go to this tribunal? Like, 
like a courthouse or a big hearing room where there's going to be this big panel of judges there and I sit in a chair and they grill me about my marriage. Thankfully, no. (laughs) No, your testimony for the petitioner is all in writing. So you should not need to go to the to uh, the tribunal. Now, in rare instances, you might be asked to come and have a conversation, but for the most part, no. Once that case is accepted, it's all on paper. Likewise, if they didn't hear from the respondent, they'll recite the respondent. He'll have, you know, he or she would have so many weeks to respond. And then we start moving into the witness statements of the witnesses, you know, being mailed their questionnaires. And that is actually the point where we, I always say to my petitioners, okay, um, as we know that's about to occur, you know, reach out to your witnesses, make sure they know what's coming, make sure they get right on it, because that's one of the parts of the case that can actually hold it up is when, you know, they said, this is going to be my witness. And then that person's, "Ah, I just didn't feel like doing it. And now your case is stuck. So, and those are your people. So, you know, you have to let your people know, hey, I really need you to, you know, fill that out. I'm not going to tell you what to say. Just fill it out and get that back into tribunal. And that will help things to continue to move forward. So from the time that they begin, it can take them a year or more to actually go through and and do this because they're handling, I guess, multiple cases, but also then they're thoroughly going through these things. And I imagine the members of the tribunal are going back and asking each other questions or whatever. So over this process of them examining this, essentially it's like a trial, but it's a trial that occurs on, not necessarily on paper, but Mm -hmm. it's all done through these, these kinds of paperwork processes, not really going and sitting in a you know, in a hearing room or something Correct. like. Yeah. So Some people have that misconception. Well, it's probably intimidating. The Absolutely. thought that, you know, someone's going to sit there and stand up some panel of, you know, nine guys who are going to sit up there and grill you and all that. That's not what happens. Yeah. So, so after all those witness statements are in and, and say the respondent has had their time to respond and everything comes in, then we're at the point of the publish, the publishing the decree of conclusion. And then from there, it's going to be sent to the defender of the bond. So interestingly, this person's role is to sort of be like the devil's advocate. Did the bond actually occur? Like I'm standing up that the the sacrament could have occurred. So this person's really arguing in favor of the validity of the sacrament. So the tribunal says we're inclined to decide in favor of the annulment. So, and so then they, they give it that chance, right? That right. it gets sent to the defender of and the bond. Then, and then they send it to this guy who plays the def- the devil's advocate to challenge it, to just really, really, you know, yeah, push on really this. really look at all the details. And, and see, and his job is to find any loopholes or chinks in the armor. So he's trying to knock it back down and say, right. I want to deny the adult. Because really what you're trying to do here is have this almost peer-reviewed process mm-hmm. where you're going to come out and go, this was really, really examined from all angles and pushed on so that the church can say no valid marriage or no valid sacrament of matrimony. We want to know for sure there was no sacrament here. And then once that defender uh, concludes their review, it will go back to the diocese to the judge for sentencing. And then he pronounces the, the outcome. Right. Yeah. He'll make his decision and then everyone will be notified of the decision. Now, there 
in our diocese, before it would go to the defender of the bond, as we're reading the case at the beginning and the witness statements come in, it will be read. And at that time, again, if they feel like it's not, you know, fully formed. It's a weak case. It's a weak case. They may send it back to us to rework or to look at. But if it's made it all the way to the defender of the bond, we're pretty confident that this case is, you know, this, that this is not. Yeah, you, you know, and I were talking sacrament. about that earlier today. So it's weird because they'll look at the percentage of cases that the tribunal um, adjudicates. And it's almost 100% of them, it decides in favor of the annulment because by the time it has gotten to that point in the process, the ruling. they've, well, they've weeded out all of the bad cases, the weak cases never sort of get to that. Because that. it's sort of like a double jeopardy thing. Once you've gone for one specific ground, if you didn't actually have enough to say, yes, it actually is definitely annulled or annullable. There's, so there's no appeal. So you can't appeal it. So, so, there's so no they're going to pull huh? the case before they're going to allow it to go through to judgment. And so from that first time that you walk into the parish office and say, I want to start this process, you're weeding out bad cases through the investigative process, through everything else, all the witness statements, so that the, the reality is, is if there's 100 people that want an annulment, only a certain percentage of those are going to get to the point where it's in front of the tribunal. Right. But by the time it gets there, it's probably a really solid case. Yeah. But when even they if, accept the case, you know, it's pretty solid there and they could come back later and ask, you know, for some more details, which it, uh, can definitely happen. But by the time we've made it all the way to the defender of the bond, we're pretty certain that we have a very solid yeah. case. But it still could, they could it still, could. they could still could rule negatively and there is no appeal. There's no double, it's like a double jeopardy, as you say. Yeah. So the There's... only uh, objection that you can have is to take it to Rome. So, ah, so, so there is an appeal. If, if the, you know, parties object to the ruling, then you can appeal to Rome after the ruling. So it's the... So say it didn't go your way. I said go in the Supreme Court. Then you could appeal it to Rome. And of course, that process is... Really long. That's really, really where it gets long. Yeah. Because those cases are coming from all around the world. And I imagine they don't... They, they then weed out. Just like look this, to see if there's merit. Like this, right? Well, like the Supreme Court. I mean, everybody would take their case to the Supreme Court, but the Supreme Court doesn't agree to hear all cases. Right. So Rome may not even like... Hey, there's right. No, their their canon lawyers would look at it and they would decide whether you yeah know, the diocese got it right off gonna, the bat. Yeah, yeah. So okay. yeah, and so then finally, then we will get a letter notifying that the annulment was granted. We can add this to a sacrament record if they're Catholic. We can give this to maybe a non-Catholic person and say, you know, this may free you to marry in the church. Uh, interestingly, there can be like sanctions put onto someone that may mean that they need to do maybe counseling or, you know, they need to have some help before they're going to be open to be able to be okay, married. So you might church. say we annul the marriage, but we right. don't give you the green light to enter you know, the second marriage until you right. go, maybe go through some healing or some other things. Because we agree that, that the first marriage wasn't valid, but you're, you, 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 you've got some brokenness right. before you would enter into a new one. And we just want to make sure that people are, are entering a real marriage right. and that they're doing it freely right. and they know what they're doing and that they have the capacity right. to enter that marriage fully. Well, the church has been dealing with this for thousands of years. So this is a long, historically complex thing. And we've, you know, just we're skimming the surface here, but this has been really helpful, I think, maybe for people to understand just a little bit what's involved because 
you know, there aren't a lot of TV shows. No, about, you can't you learn know, about this on TV, can you? Yeah, we? <laughs> no, not really. So, Carla, thank you so much for You're coming so on welcome. and sharing with us about the grounds for annulments and the process for annulments. And I know that this is something that deserves a lot of prayer because it's dealing with the substance of people's lives. And, and you know, and, I, and maybe a conversation for another time is what about those people who want to enter the church and, and, and don't get the answer they want? And maybe that's a pastoral conversation for another time. But we're going to wrap it for today. Hey, thank you again for joining us for this episode. As always, please rate and review the podcast. That really helps us with searches, as does follow or subscribe. Whatever podcast platform you're on, there'll be a follow or subscribe button. Make sure you do that. And go to our website, consideringcatholicism.com. You can see all of the episodes there, categories and searchable by topic. You can also leave a message there. You can also write me an email at consideringcatholicism.com. I'd love to hear your stories, love your questions. And while you're there, would you consider supporting this ministry? You can give a one-time or recurring gift, which allows us to sustain this and, and even grow it so that more people can consider Catholicism. Thank you for joining us, and we look forward to seeing you or having you hear us in the next episode. Thanks, Carla. Thanks.